Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at Core Anesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com. Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. I'm Cole here with Tanner, and today we want to look at the anesthetic plan for back cases. Back cases is an umbrella term that is used to describe really any case that we're going to be working on the spine with the patient in the prone position. This can be anything from a fusion of different vertebrae to removing hardware, placing hardware, et cetera. And really, for the most part, our anesthetic plan is pretty similar. So rather than go through each one individually, we're just going to talk about what the generic anesthetic plan is for a, quote, back case. And so, Tanner, you just want to take us away with preoperative stuff that we're going to be looking at before we jump into these cases? One of the main things that you want to think about for patients that are undergoing back surgery is if they've had back pain for a prolonged period of time, they may be on some pain management therapies. And so you may have somebody who comes in that has been on opioids for a long period of time. And so this is something that you may need to consider just for your dosing. And as you consider what you'll do for your anesthetic plan, you may need to use some other pathways as well. So you might want to think about some ketamine or some Presidex, maybe working in some mag and lidocaine, things like that. Or you might just need to use an increased dose of your narcotics. And so this is something to ask the patient about, look at their med history and see if they are on these medications preoperatively. Another thing you want to consider is if you're doing a cervical spine, you need to be very aware of their neck mobility. And this may play into how you do your induction, whether you use a GlideScope or whether you use a fiber optic intubation. If they have very stiff cervical mobility, then you'll need to use these other things that you can use for induction. So it's very important that uh, you just get a very good preoperative assessment. You look at their neck range of motion. And again, you just look at their preoperative history to see if they are on any pain modalities that you may need to change your anesthetic plan. Right. And before we move into getting the patient into the operative room, it's really important to have that discussion with the surgeon in terms of what type of extraneous variables are going to be used in the case. And what I mean by that is, will there be monitoring? So some surgeons choose to have a motor or sensory evoke potential be monitored throughout the case to make them aware if there is any ischemia or damage to any nerves that are occurring around where they're working. And if this is the case, it'll change our anesthetic plan. If you recall from our talk on neuroanesthesia, if we're going to be using these monitoring, one, if we're just doing sensory evoke potentials, we can't use anything over half MAC in terms of volatile anesthetics. Some Monitoring techs will tell you they want less than that, some want more than that, but really it's about a half a Mac or less is pretty standard of what you can use when you're going to be using this monitoring. So you need to know ahead of time, are we going to be doing this? Because if that's the case, you cannot plan on doing a typical general anesthetic plan with a volatile anesthetic gas, and you're going to have to throw in a TIVA-like picture. It doesn't have to be a straight TIVA. We're using complete IV anesthetic, but you're going to have a mixture between that low volatile anesthetic gas Plus, you might have a propofol drip, a Presidex drip, et cetera. You might work in some ketamine, and this is something that you really just need to know ahead of time with the surgeon and discuss, is there going to be monitoring used in this case? Additionally, if they're going to be using motor evoke potentials, then you are not going to be able to relax the patient. 
And so some techs will allow you to do rachuronium on induction just because by the time you get the patient all situated and ready to start the case, that'll be worn off. Others say do not use any nanopolarizers at all. If you're going to be using a muscle relaxant on induction, you can use succinylcholine just because it'll then be worn off faster by the time we go ahead and start the case. So again, these are all things just to be conscious of before we actually start the case and discuss what that plan is going to be with your anesthesiologist, any other professionals in the room, the surgeon, et cetera. So when we get into the actual induction, when the patient comes in the room, this will vary depending on the facility you work at, but for the most part, what's going to happen is they'll come in on their stretcher and you will go ahead and induce on the patient's bed they come in on, and then you will flip them into the prone position onto the operating bed itself. So when the patient comes in, they'll still be on their regular bed. You go ahead and induce standard induction here. But like I said, just be aware if you're going to be doing that monitoring and what you've discussed ahead of time, if you're going to be able to use a low-dose rocuronium or if you can use succinylcholine. And as Tanner talked about doing that preoperative assessment, are we going to be able to do a DL or are we going to be hindered by a limited neck mobility? And so we might need to use a glide scope or a fiber optic innovation. So these are all things just to be in consideration and have that open communication before we really get the patient into the room. But really, once they're in the room and you already have that communication done and you know what type of relaxant you're going to use, if there is going to be one used, it's a pretty standard induction. Once you get the patient induced, you get them all hooked up to the breathing circuit, you verify that you're in the trachea and you're at the correct depth and we have gotten the patient where we want them to be, again, on that low volatile anesthetic that we're going to be using, you can go ahead and flip the patient into the prone position on the actual operating bed. Perfect. So before you flip them over onto the table, some things that can make your job easier is just to pay attention to how you connect your monitors. And so connect your EKG patches onto the back so that when you disconnect these and you flip them over onto the table prone, these patches are already on their back and will just save you some time from disconnecting or repositioning the EKG patches. Also, you'll probably disconnect from all of your monitors. Sometimes you'll keep your pulse ox on just so you have that monitor on. You can pay attention to their pulse oximetry as well as their heart rate and things like that as you flip them. But you'll want to make sure that all your lines and tubes are positioned appropriately so that you're not all tangled up as you make this position switch to the prone position. Once you flip onto the table, it's important that you recheck for breath sounds, make sure that your tube is in place. If you're using a pillow or if you're using a brace to cushion the face, you want to look at the eyes, make sure that there's no pressure on the lips, the ears, that you have a really good eye on what's going on with the positioning as far as the chest. You want to make sure that there's no pressure points that are being pinched either in the breast area or down in the groin area. You want to make sure that everything is free and clear and that you're not having any excessive pressure that will cause issues for the patient. You'll first want to connect your circuit, obviously, when you flip them over to the bed. The first thing that you'll want to do, if you disconnected your pulse ox, you'll want to connect that first, and then you can go ahead and connect your EKG patches, your blood pressure cuff, get that cycling again. Many times this is kind of stimulating for the patient if you have them off of the agent, if you had them up to maybe a max day before you flip them. So sometimes you can give a little bit of narcotic right before you flip or right after you flip. 
But again, the first thing you want to do is just make sure that your monitors are back hooked up, you've checked breath sounds, and that all the pressure points are checked and that you aren't having any issues with positioning. As they move the arms, the arms will be down by the waist as you flip. The first thing that you'll do is kind of put the arms up on these boards in the swimmer position. You want to be very careful as they move those arms up that they aren't just rotating them around, but that they are doing that in a natural way, following a natural motion of the shoulder joint so you don't have any issues there in the shoulder. Obviously, the patient's relaxed, the patient is sedated, and so you can cause some injury there with positioning the arms. So it's very important that you make sure that that's less than 90 degrees, that there's no pressure there on the ulnar nerve on the actual pads. Go ahead and strap those arms in place. And at this point, you can start doing some ancillary things such as doing your bear hugger and things like that. You'll want to make sure, again, these patients are relaxed. So you'll have your nerve monitor there on the wrist, and so you can be checking twitches there. Many times after you get them positioned, you'll go ahead and check twitches. Maybe at this time you'll have some twitches back, and so you'll want to give some more muscle relaxant. But to Cole's point, if you are using monitoring, this is where you will not be obviously giving more muscle relaxant. Depending on what you gave for induction, whether that was sucks or that was a low-dose rock, you can check twitches just to make sure that muscle function is returned. Otherwise, the tech will be able to communicate that to you. But it's very important that if you're not using muscle relaxant, again, that you have them pretty deep so that they're not moving when the surgeon starts incision. So this is something that you'll possibly need to add Neo on even before they flip or very quickly after you flip just because you're going to have to keep them at such a deep anesthetic depth. By the end of the case, when we get to the emergent side of things, you're going to be flipping the patient back onto their stretcher or whatever bed they came into the operating room on and then exhibiting from that standpoint. Depending on the length of the procedure with this patient being in the prone position, they're really at risk of having some airway edema and swelling that occurs as well as swelling in the facial area. So we're really concerned about the eyes and there's post-op vision loss that is at an increased risk during these cases. And this is really increased at the length in the prone position along with large blood loss and large volume of crystalline administration. So these things all together should be in your head as you're going through the case and how you're managing these patients. Where if they're losing a lot of blood, maybe talking ahead of time if it's going to be at an increased risk of a lot of blood loss doing a cell saver technique. Also, maybe using some albumin rather than using a lot of crystalloids, et cetera. And then, like I said, with that airway edema, when we put the patient back over, you should be careful to do a leak test where you deflate your cuff, make sure you have air leaking around the outside of the tube in that trachea just to ensure that you don't have too much swelling that is going to be occluding the airway when you remove that tube. Other than that, it's a pretty straightforward emergence. You can either do deeper awake depending on individual patients or CRNA preference. The other thing before you turn the patient back over, when you're getting close to the end of them closing the incision, you can get the patient breathing again, especially when you're not using that relaxant Anything you can do just to save yourself time so that when you flip the patient back over, you're ready to go with your emergence and you're not starting from the beginning here when you flip them over. In terms of pain-wise, after the procedure, you can either use a epidural catheter, uh, intercostal local anesthesia, depending on the severity of the surgery. You can use 
longer acting opioids is especially important if you've been using a remifentanil infusion intraoperatively. You're going to want to switch over to a longer acting opioid prior to leaving that OR. You can do interthecal morphine. Toradol can also be given along with NSAIDs, but some surgeons may prefer that you don't do this just because these medications can decrease the amount of bone formation and union in these cases. And this obviously is not the best situation to have happened when we're going to be dealing with the orthopedic side of things in a spinal case. So some surgeons may tell you to avoid the use of NSAIDs or Toradol at the end of the procedure. The other thing is preoperatively, the nurse may be talking to the patient and just getting a good baseline of their symptoms. This is something to compare in post-op if the patient is awake enough just to see if there was anything intraoperatively that changed as far as if they were feeling numbness or if they were feeling pain, things like that preoperatively just to compare that to their post-operative condition. This might be something that you can assess there when you get to the PACU. Overall, the main thing for this case is just as you go through induction, have a clear communication plan with the surgeon. If we're going to do monitoring, that's going to change how we do induction. Make sure all your lines are set up appropriately so that when you flip, you're not getting tangled and causing more work for yourself. And then just pay attention, again, to all the pressure points that you're not letting the patient go too hypotensive or giving too much fluid risk for postoperative vision loss, things like that. And then as you go back, just making sure that you keep the patient safe, keep the neck in line as you flip both onto the table and off of the table. This is a effort that involves everybody in the operating room, the surgeon, the circulators, the techs, and you as the anesthesia provider, just to make sure the patient stays safe going to the prone position and then uh, all throughout the case. So hopefully this is helpful for you and is a good synopsis of a general back case and will give you good things to think about as you go into your next case.